Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of, number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and, through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Amen. Okay. Well, every time I come to St. Peter's, uh, there's more and more things about this building that really impressed me. Uh, one thing that uh, I want to recommend is a clock just directly in front of me, okay? So uh, if you were on Sunday school this morning, or creche, I want to apologize because uh, you had a especially long session. Uh, so if uh, I've never met you before, if you don't know who I am, my name is Neil McMillan. Uh, I'm a minister. I live in uh, Edinburgh, so I'm just here uh, visiting today. We're going to look at this chapter, chapter 11 of the book of Acts, which, of course, is the story of the New Testament church, uh, its birth and uh, growth. And uh, this chapter falls into two sections, which certainly the NIV text picks up very clearly. Uh, so Brian read the first section, verses 1 to 18, and I read the second section from 19 down uh, to the end of the chapter in verse 30. And uh, the, the first half of chapter 11 is a continuation of uh, 10. That seems obvious in one way. but So there's a theme that begins in Acts chapter 10 and runs into chapter 11, which is the story of Peter and Cornelius and uh, Peter going for, uh, to, to the home of Cornelius the centurion and then some of the fallout uh, from that. And then what happens at verse 19 is that the narrative switches about and uh, it reconnects with a story or, or, uh, that began in chapter 8. Uh, uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, just flip back uh, to Acts 8 for a moment, and you'll see that at the beginning of Acts 8, uh, the church is persecuted. Uh, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout uh, Judea, and Samaria, verse 4 tells us, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
Uh, so, verse 19, very clearly, uh, Luke, as author, is picking back up on uh, that uh, narrative. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So, that's just to give you a little bit of a view of uh, how this chapter functions, but of course, there are themes uh, that run right through the chapter, uh, which is uh, what we're going to try and pick up on this evening. Uh, when I was a student, uh, one, of, one of the things I was really passionate about as a student was uh, politics. And uh, I, I studied politics uh, for a few years, and uh, I was uh, active in politics uh, in some ways. And uh, one of the things that I used to like to do with some of my friends was to get involved in uh, protests. So I was one of those uh, annoying people who would uh, go uh, to the city centre of Glasgow and we would sit down in the middle of the road and stop the traffic and uh, chant slogans about apartheid or the poll tax or whatever uh, we were feeling outraged by on that particular occasion. So uh, one day we were in, uh, just beside Central Station in Glasgow and uh, we were blocking the traffic and uh, uh, there was great entertainment because uh, the constabulary were there and they were picking up these students one by one off the road and every student they picked up, uh, they took him to the side of the road, banged his head off a van and then plonked him on the pavement and then the next one, same thing, bang his head in the van, plonk him on the pavement. So we sat watching this and then after a while, of course, things got a little bit heated. And uh, a bit of a melee broke out, and the police started pushing people, and people were pushing the police back. And uh, this, and this guy got pushed over, and uh, my friend Adam, uh, who was a medical student, he just, uh, he lost it. And he had a placard in his hand, and he started running up the road, shouting and chasing uh, these police officers up the street. And... Uh, he had no idea what he was doing, and uh, as he was sprinting up the road in pursuit of the police, uh, the long arm of the law reached out and grabbed him. He was a, a, just a scalp of a person anyway. He was a tiny wee guy, and this big copper just lifted him up, pulled him off the road, and uh, gave him a little bit of a talking to, uh, is probably the nicest way to put it. Uh, and <laughs> it, it, it was a red mist moment. You know, he afterwards... He says, I can't believe I did that. I don't know what came over me. He was completely shocked by his behavior in those circumstances. And in a way, uh, Peter's just had one of those, uh, I can't believe what I just did moments. Because he's Jewish, and all his life, he's tried to live as a good uh, kind of devout Jewish man would live. And so he would follow uh, all the dietary uh, laws of Judaism or, and uh, all, the, all the purity laws of Judaism. And one of the strictest laws they had was never eat with a non-Jew. If they're not Jewish, they're not clean. And if they're not clean, you can't eat with them. And Peter's just had dinner with a whole load of Gentiles, non-Jews. And that's a really, you know, to us it's just like, okay. But to, to somebody from, Jew, from a Jewish background, from Peter's background, that's a really shocking thing. Really shocking. 
And so, you know, Peter actually knew what he was doing because the Holy Spirit led him to do it. But the rest of the, the, the church community who were Jewish, and they, they couldn't believe it. They can't understand what's come over Peter. So when we go to chapter 11, Peter goes to Jerusalem, and what happens? Well, he gets an absolute earful from the rest of the church. Uh, Luke puts it fairly politely when he says the circumcised believers criticized him. These men and women would have been really deeply hurt and offended by Peter's behavior. It would have scandalized them. And they accuse him. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And you can hear shock, hurt, dismay, unbelief, incredulity. You know, this is a, this is a jaw-dropping moment for them. You, you really did this? You went into the house of unbelievers, of uncircumcised men, and ate with them. And so, something really important, amazing, and obviously completely unexpected and unusual is happening here. And what's happening, of course, is that the cultural boundaries of the early church are being shattered. And I want to say that one of the great truths that we learn in this passage is that there are no limits to the church in terms of culture. There are no limits to the church in terms of culture. Every church has a culture. My church in Edinburgh has its own particular kind of culture. This church has its own unique little culture, different from the church I go to in some ways, similar in some ways. But in every church, people behave in certain ways, follow certain routines and patterns and rituals. Every church has its own culture just by choosing to use a language, English, Japanese, Dutch, French, uh, or whatever. And then within those languages, of course, people have their own jargon and in-house way of speaking. Every culture and every church culture has certain styles of music, certain ways of dressing, certain kinds of buildings and architecture. So those are all different ways in which churches express their culture. And uh, from inside a culture, of course, what you do seems completely normal. But for people who are out with your culture, some of the things you do seem really weird. And it's hard to remember that because for you it's normal, to them it's freaky. Uh, we were talking this afternoon uh, about funerals. And uh, I was a minister in Fife for a long time. And in Fife, uh, all the undertakers and uh, people associated with the burial of the dead uh, we'd show great respect uh, to the coffin. Uh, and so when the coffin's carried into the church or into the crematorium, the, the, the men who are carrying the coffin uh, for the undertakers, after they've put the coffin down, they would all take a step back together, take a little bow uh, as a sign of respect and reverence. And I was saying that, you know, so for me that was kind of culturally normal. Uh, and then uh, my wife's in the Western Isles, uh, uh, and I went with her to a funeral. I was on holiday there, and somebody in her village died. So I went along to this funeral uh, in the Isle of Lewis, and uh, I found they have a very different culture. 
So the first thing that happened to me that I didn't expect was that when I got to the graveside, somebody walked up to me and said, the minister's gone home, you're in charge. Well, I didn't really expect that, and I didn't know what to do. So I said, well, what do I do? And, I, and they said, all you have to do is say, thank you for coming. I didn't have to pray or do a committal or anything like that, just thank you for coming. So uh, I did it. I stood there. Uh, it was pouring rain. It was dreech and miserable on a hillside in Lewis. Uh, there were about 20 guys standing around because none of the women came to the graveside. And uh, I said, on behalf of the family, thank you for coming. That was it. The minute I stopped speaking, one of the men standing by the graveside jumped into the grave and started treading up and down on top of the coffin. I was aghast. I thought, what sacrilege. Where's the respect? But to them, nobody else batted an eyelid because there, in that village, they dig their own graves. Or they dig, you know, if somebody in your family dies, you dig the grave for your, for your mother or your father or your auntie or your uncle. And after the, 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 the burial is complete, the first thing you do is go into the grave and tread the coffin in and settle it into place. And then all the guys just grab a spade and fill in uh, the grave. You see, to them, perfectly normal. That's their culture. To me, utterly weird. Uh, because it wasn't my culture. And so, one of the things we have to do then is to think about culture and the church. Here, in the New Testament church, there is a very rigid culture to begin with. Because the New Testament, the, the early church, is born into Jewish culture. And so, at its very beginning, all these believers are Jewish. They keep following their own cultural ways of uh, patterns of living, their dietary laws, their laws of purification, circumcision of children, all of those things that meant a lot in their culture, they held on to them along with their faith in Jesus Christ. That was the cultural form that the church began with. That's why it's such a shock that Peter's eaten with people who aren't Jewish. And, whenever, uh, and what's happening then here is that God is smashing, and I mean it, God is smashing the cultural mold the church was born into. And he's saying the church has been born into the cultural mold of Judaism, but now it's going to be set free from that culture. So to begin with, you see, the, the danger was that people would think, if I'm not Jewish, to become a Christian, I have to start following Jewish rites and Jewish rituals. I have to get my children circumcised. I have to start following dietary laws and so on. So to become a Christian, does that mean I have to change my culture. And God was saying uh, to the church, no, that's not how things are going to be. If uh, non-Jewish people are going to become Christians, then the church needs to adapt its culture for these non-Jewish people. It needs to get rid of the rituals of Judaism for people who are not Jewish. So, God is saying that there are some things in the church we're not flexible on. 
You know, we're not flexible on the message we preach. We're not flexible on the gospel. We're not flexible in the authority of Scripture. We're not flexible in the preaching of the Word. So, there's lots of things we, we're not flexible about. We hold them with a closed hand, so to speak. But there are other things that we, we should be totally flexible about, and we hold them with an open hand. So, yes, we want to sing praise to God, but the language we sing in, the style of music, that can vary. Yes, we want to pray. Yes, we want to meet together. But how we do that, when we do that, where we do that, that is all totally up for grabs. And the, the thing that ought to drive us in how we um, create the culture of our congregation is to think, what are the needs and what's the culture of the people around us who are not believers? You see, so in my church last year, we had a, a big conversation about the timing of the evening service, half past six or half past five or five or six or what should we go for? So within the church, we had a big conversation with each other about service times. We didn't think to, to go about or take time to go and speak with people who weren't believers and say, if you were ever going to come to church, what time would most suit you in the day? So you can try and create a culture where the timings and the things you do are suited to the people in the church, or you can try and organize them in a way that are suited to people outside the church. And that's what God was saying really here. He's saying as you create a culture in your church, create it not for those who are insiders, but for those who are outsiders. Don't think about what suits you best but think about what suits those who don't yet know Jesus best. It's not about making yourselves feel at home. It's not about suiting your own tastes and needs. It's about making people who are very different from us feel at home. The church is not about my preferences or your preferences. The church is about what will be most effective in reaching new people new cultures with the gospel. So, I just want to leave that first point there and say, let's not limit the church culturally by just having things done the way we like it all the time. Let's try and understand the culture outside the church and then work towards uh, making things uh, accessible and helpful for them. We're removing hindrances so that Jesus might be known. Because we're not trying to bring people to our culture. We're trying to bring people to Jesus, our Savior. So that's the first thing then we see in the chapter. There shouldn't be cultural limits around the way we do things. No limits culturally. Second thing I want to say, though, is that there should be no limits geographically. See, there's no... There's no uh, clock for me to check with here, so I'm going on at great length again, so I'm going to speed up very quickly. Uh, those who have been scattered by the persecution in, uh, with Stephen go to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message uh, only to Jews. Right, so this is really about the internationalization of the church. Uh, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, some of you have probably been on your holiday, Okay. Uh, Phoenicia is what we would call Libya today. Uh, not Libya, forgive me, Lebanon. 
And then uh, the Antioch spoken of here is Syrian Antioch. So in other words, this is the spread of the gospel beyond Judea and Samaria, out into Cyprus, over into Lebanon, further north into Syria. And uh, what we're beginning to see is that the church is an international uh, movement, churches working together and sharing together a mission across international boundaries. And so, as Christians, we can sometimes have a small local vision of the church, or we can have a big gospel vision of the church. And we need to seek out how we can be part of the global church and have a global vision. The Jerusalem church isn't driving this, is it? It's not like headquarters is sending a message. Okay, guys, here's the strategy. Let's move out to Cyprus and then from Cyprus to Lebanon. Once we've established a church in Lebanon, let's go north into Syria. The Jerusalem church didn't really have a clue what was going on. Verse 22 tells us news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. So they were just picking up on what was happening as it went along. And uh, the pattern of mission in the New Testament church is of a, a partnership between local churches in different places across international boundaries. And that's really different from the way mission looks like in the 20th, 21st century. Because what happened to mission in the 19th and 20th centuries is mission was taken out of the hands of the local church and it was put into the hands of experts in uh, mission boards and in mission agencies. And so you and I became disenfranchised from international and global mission. And it's getting, there is nothing in the New Testament to say that that's right or to encourage the professionalization, uh, handing over of international mission to experts. And so I want to encourage you to say, how can I be involved in the global mission of the church? As a local Christian in this local church, how can I be involved in the global mission that we've been given? And, uh, you know, often in our churches, what we do is we, we, we uh, kind of adopt a missionary and we pray for people. So, in my church, we pray for a couple who are church planting in Siberia. Uh, and we pray for other people who are doing some work in South Africa and Latin America and so on. And it's kind of curious because we, we know a lot about these people, these couples, and we know next to nothing about their churches. That's weird. You know, it's strange. Because the, the pattern in the New Testament is church to church. You're not just supporting two individuals in mission, you're supporting your sister church somewhere across the globe as it does mission. So, you know, so we pray for this couple in Siberia. We don't know the names of any of the people in their church. And there's no connection between the body of Christ in Edinburgh, where I worship, and the body of Christ in that town, Novosibirsk, in Siberia. And what we see here is different. There's just an awful lot more uh, sharing going on around the world. Uh, it's not globalized at this point, of course, but Paul and Barnabas are sent or taken into the Antioch church to see what's going on, to train up, to help, to partner. 
And so I want to say to you, please have a big vision for God's church in this world. So, because what do we want to do as the people of God? We want to declare the, the glory of Jesus to the nations. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called by God in what Paul calls, a, you know, the, the gospel given to Abraham was this, I will make you a blessing to the nations. That's where the gospel story kind of emerges, Genesis 12. Brian read for us in Revelation 4, right at the beginning of the service, what was promised to Abraham thousands of years before, finally accomplished. Revelation 4. And so, Abraham, Genesis 12, Revelation 4, all the nations come into worship. Our calling as the New Testament church, is to bring the nations to worship at the throne of Jesus Christ. And so, we need to have a passion for Jesus so that we'll have a passion for making Jesus known. So, no limits culturally to the church. I want to say no limits geographically, that you should be engaging with other local churches in other places around the world and really partnering with them in mission. Send your Paul, send your Barnabas, go and get alongside these churches and really, you know, love them and give to them in their mission. The last thing I'm going to say is no limit to our generosity. Uh, at the end of the chapter, news comes in of a famine that's been predicted by uh, a prophet uh, called Ab Agab Agabus. He stands up and predicts this severe famine, and we read the disciples, each according to his ability, decide to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. One of the remarkable things about the early church is their absolutely incredible generosity. Uh, in Acts chapter 2 and from there on, we read of different times when they express their community with each other by selling their possessions and giving to others just this really great heart for sharing and loving other people and being kind to them and being generous. And that's how the gospel shapes our lives and hearts, doesn't it? It's a remarkable feature of church life in the New Testament. So, here in Acts 11, that same amazing feature pops up its head. Here are people who want to show generosity, and there are no limits to their generosity. They show an amazing generosity in the church in Antioch. Do you know how generous they are? They are sending money to Jewish believers. Now, again, culturally, that's an incredible thing to happen. In that world, the greatest, deepest ethnic division was between Jew and non-Jew. They despised each other. And so, the fact that these non-Jews are sending money to support Christian Jews back in Jerusalem is an amazing demonstration. The gospel heals our hatreds. The gospel reconciles across cultures. The gospel creates a new humanity where we're not, and our identity is not defined by race or ethnicity. Our identity is defined by belonging as children to the living God. And so, that's the generosity. There's no limit to it. Everybody gives as much as they possibly can. We read about the church in Philippi in 2 Corinthians, out of severe tri trial, overwhelming joy, and extreme poverty, 
rose up rich generosity. We have to be really generous. And yet often we're really stingy. We have to be ready to give, and yet often we are so selfish. Uh, I'm trying to work out if I've got time for one more quick story, which I'm going to give myself permission. I hope you'll, you'll forgive me. So Tim Keller, uh, who's one of my uh, more favored preachers to listen to, he's got a good story about uh, how can you make stingy Christians generous? And uh, we're all stingy to one degree or another. Uh, uh, and Scots especially. I was at a conference in uh, Berlin a few weeks ago, and they were, the main speaker, uh, or one of the main speakers at the conference, he kind of tried to make a joke, and uh, it was a cultural joke about cultural differences. So he was saying, all the Americans at this conference are walking about going, wow, this is an amazing conference. This is fantastic. This is awesome. Uh, so that's a cultural stereotype of uh, the Americans. And then the Dutch were going about saying, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, we don't mind this. This is all right. And uh, the guy then said, and the Scots are going about saying, it's too expensive. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so all, all people struggle with mean hearts, but Scots struggle more with mean hearts. Uh, and I don't know why that is. So how do you make stingy Christians generous? Well, Tim Keller, the way he describes it, he says, uh, if you're, a, if you're uh, in a conservative evangelical church, what you do is you say, uh, right, we're raising money next week uh, to give to uh, orphans in Africa. The Bible tells us we are to be generous, so I want you to be generous. And then next week they have the, uh, the collection and hardly anybody gives any money. 42 quid or something comes in. So he's really mad Next week, he stands up and says, you know, we're having this collection for the orphans in Africa, and you hardly gave anything. Don't you know what the Bible says? The Bible says you must give. And week after week, he pounds them, saying, this is what the Word of God says. You should do it, because the Bible says you should do it. But they, they're still mean. They know what the Bible says, but it's not changed their heart. And then it says, you go to the kind of uh, more charismatic evangelical church, and uh, they say, right, we're going to have a collection for the orphans in Africa next week, and uh, they take the collection, and it's 24 pounds. It's rubbish. pastor's really upset. Comes back next week, he's got a video played of starving children in Africa. He's crying. Everybody else is crying. And it's all emotional. And uh, the next week, they have another collection, and it's no better. And he keeps on saying, and listen, these poor children, aren't you touched by them? And it's really hard to change people's hearts. There's only one thing that changes people's hearts. It's the gospel. And you know what will make you generous? It's seeing how generous Jesus is to you. And so we're told that Jesus, though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor, so that we, through His poverty, might be made rich. So, when we see these things, that our hearts begin to melt, and we begin to change. And so, we need to learn to be more generous, and not put limits on our, our giving, our generosity, 
Give as much as you can and be ready to deny yourself. Um, so I worked out a few rough calculations. Uh, I've got an 18-year-old daughter, so uh, she hangs out with students all the time. And uh, students today have much more debt than I did when I was a student, but they also have a much better lifestyle. And so she goes out for dinner with her pals at least once a week. Uh, so, you know, if you don't go out for dinner four times a month, but or you know, uh, three times a month instead of four, so you go out for one less meal a month and you drop a couple of coffees out a week, suddenly you've got 20 or 30 pounds a month more to give. Uh, maybe your phone contract is something you can drop by 10 pounds a month, or your Sky package. You see, we're really wealthy, all of us, compared with the rest of the world. If you have one tap with running water in your house, that makes you in the top 15% of wealthy people in the world. So we think sometimes we're hard done by, and yet we've got so much. And so we need to give. Because it's not ours, is it? It's God's. He's given it to you and said, I'm trusting you with this wealth so that you'll use it to glorify me and bless other people. And so this is a really wonderful picture of this New Testament church. They're beginning to reach out beyond their own culture. They're beginning to reach out beyond their own local geography. And they're beginning to reach out with amazing generosity. And so we read that great numbers of people in verse 21 and in verse 24, it's re-emphasized, great numbers of people are believing and turning to the Lord. Why? Because these people, their lives are driven not by culture, but by the gospel. And when the gospel drives your life, things begin to happen. When Jesus shapes your life, things begin to happen. Okay, I'll say a short prayer and let Brian back up. Lord, we do pray that you'll hear, our, that we'll hear your word tonight, that we will respond to your word and that we will believe your word. Oh, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be hard before your truth and before your gospel, that we wouldn't resist uh, the work that you seek to do in us, but that we would be ready to change, willing to change, dying to change. Oh, Lord, we want to lay aside our own selfishness, and we want to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.